Welcome to Unexpressed, where we put words to the inexpressible. My name is David White, and I'm the publisher at Whitefire. Over the years, I've had the privilege and opportunity to work with some really amazing people, very talented authors mostly, who have a unique view of the world. Our focus has been on the things that are important and challenging, viewed through the lens of storytelling. Our readers and our listeners are a part of that process. So if you're like us and you're looking for a podcast that will challenge you and encourage you to challenge yourself, you've come to the right place. Today we're going to conclude our series on what makes good stories that are worth reading. So if you haven't listened to the other episodes, this would be a good time to go back and listen to those first. Today we're going to jump right in and discuss the spiritual elements of characters and storytelling. And then we're going to take the last half or so and discuss how we sum up the series as a whole and try to answer the question, what makes good stories that are worth reading? All right, so last time we spent a good bit of time talking about the communal aspect of writing, from being a writer with a community of other people helping them to be better writers, to reading as a community, to just experiencing things together and how that that's a call or a lens or something on our own lives, to borrow the, the lens imagery. But... I think that there's something you you hinted at it a very 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 little bit um, when you talked about Paul and everyone having their own parts to play, mm-hmm. and how you know there is a bigger author than all of us. Yes, <laughs> writing writing us as characters, and much like real characters in real books, like we have a mind of our own. Yeah, yeah, fictional characters do too, just like we do. Absolutely. What's their lens? Like, you know, I'm trying to think, like, how how does God give us a lens is maybe the, the way I'm, I'm aiming the question. Right. So when I was talking about, you know, Paul speaking to the churches and um, using the analogy of a body, it's to say we all have a part to play. We all have a gift. We all have something that the Spirit has bestowed on us, the same Spirit working in all of us. So we ought to be able to work in unity but that we're not all equipped to do all the same things. We're, we're all different. We have different strengths. We have different talents. We have different gifts. So, you know, we're expected to use them. I, I, one of the things I'm, I'm wondering is how do you reflect that properly in the world? Because you've sort of looked at, we, we've almost talked about the various examples over time in a psychological way, right? Like Camden is, well, I'm not even sure exactly what he is. <laughs> But he's affected by his experience. And if anybody is listening to this out of order, go back and listen to the bits. <laughs> Earlier on, I don't remember exactly what episode, but we were talking about Camden and his book um, on Wings of Devotion and him and Arabelle. But they have like childhood experiences. They have experiences where they've grown up into things. <clears throat> they've had, you know, experiences in war right. that have shaped them. So we're looking at the, we've looked at the psychology but two people could go through the same thing, could live nearly identical lives and come out at very different different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. Like one of the the things that was common, I guess, historically, um, and by necessity was, you know, you would have an heir that would take over and another person who would be a vicar and another person who would join the military. Right. Like these were yeah, the... the. This is the British family. Right. The British gentry family. Yes. Firstborn inherits. Secondborn goes military, and thirdborn goes church, or maybe flip the two and three there. Right. So ideally, you would be born in an order that your gift would 
apply. That always happens. Um, and the best type of stories are the ones where, you know, the vicar has to join the military and the, I don't know, I'm, try, I'm trying to mix, <laughs> and mix the them all And the pirate has to join the church. and Sure. Yeah. Yeah, where it calls you And the out person of- who's going to be an heir wants nothing to do with any of that. Yeah. So it, it's not as easy as just saying, oh, it would be fun to make this person. Right. Because it, in it's, real life. it's not just role, like casting them in a role, right? Because they have, you know, when you have a character and a personality, there, there are always other elements too, especially if you're in the faith space and writing, you know, characters who are or become Christians, there's this whole other spiritual element. And I think it's always there, whether they're Christians or not. I think, you know, the, the spirit almost acts as a magnifying glass on things that are in us already. Sometimes I think he, you know, puts totally new things in us. And I think sometimes it's just pulling out what's kind of latent or what's muted. Right. So I think, though, that even in in the Christian space, it's very common that people are Christians and sort of do Christian-y things. But spiritual things don't always play. Is that a mistake or is that a problem? I think so. I think it's selling yourself short or selling your work short or whatever the it may be there that it's not fully embracing this gift given to us. I mean, why why would you do that, right? Like if someone gives you this amazing gift, why aren't you exploring it in all in all aspects and why aren't you showing it? Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about how an individual person's gifts or inclinations. I mean, maybe a little bit. Again, I'll I'll take Arabelle as an example. Like she may have had an honest spiritual gift of, I don't know. What Healing the, or sure, generosity or... Any of those. Like those two things seemed kind of related. Yeah. So, but other people also have them, right? Like it's really sure. easy to see them in certain characters, right? Like you'll, you'll lay it on thick. <laughs> um, you have a character um, that's uh, a Russian Orthodox priest in... Which book is A Portrait that? of Loyalty. Thank you. And that's out. So yes, that would no, be... No, September 20th. Oh, it's not out. No, September. That's the oh, one that's see. coming. So everyone, you should go read this just to, to look <laughs> at this fellow. But he is like, he's got, a, a, you know, a, a gift of wisdom, right? Like, right. he can cut people who need to be cut to the quick very one easily. Slice. Yeah. Right. And you see him do it a couple times. Yeah. And like, no one else could have done that. And I think in large part because it was always in relation to this one character, he would not have accepted it from anyone else. He wouldn't have heard it from anyone else. He needed it to come from his priest because that was that was a voice he would trust um, from, from whom he would expect such wisdom. And who knows what that person's other gifts are in the church because I can't imagine that everyone responds to that kind of, you know, spiritual and emotional backslap. <laughs> no, but I think the or people backhand slap. The yeah. people who have the gift of wisdom also included in that is how to reach certain people. Like it because I I my my definition, the Rosanna definition of wisdom is knowing how to use the knowledge that that you have. I mean, knowledge is facts and wisdom is how to use it. So 
you can know something about different people. You can know their positions in life. You can know their circumstances, but without the wisdom to interact with them and give them God's wisdom, it, it could just fall on deaf ears. So I think part of that, that gift, part of the gift of wisdom would be knowing how to present things to each, each one individually. You know, Zivin needed the slap across the back of the head, um, and another character would need a soft, gentle approach. And I really think Father of Geni would have known how to deal with both. Right. So this makes me wonder whether we can misuse gifts. And could you know that this person's going to respond well or badly to this and use that for lack of a better way to put it, to manipulate. Absolutely. And I really think, especially in fiction, this is so fun to explore, right? Because we hit on this a bit when we were talking about evil and villains in stories. I think the the villain is the one who has that same gift and uses it in an unjust way, uses it for his own benefit instead of the, the greater benefit, uses it to manipulate instead of to uphold or edify. Right, like a person who has a gift of hospitality or something like that could be very charming mm -hmm. and could draw you in and then horribly misuse that. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, there have been talks of Machiavelli lately, so I'm thinking, invite them all to this sumptuous feast and then kill them all! You don't, you don't want to go there. No, so, but it's an interesting question that I don't think that we've touched on at all in this discussion, though, is... Can you misuse any of the gifts? I think so. I mean, I think... I think that this is an interesting question that some people are going to really argue about, though, right? They're going to say, if it's a gift from God, it can't be misused. Well, but the same people will say that everything that is comes from God. Can you say that no one misuses anything? They are who God made them to be. So every gift we have is God-given. And misuse could be accidental, right? Oh. Yeah, totally you don't always good. mean to cause harm. No, no. Sometimes it's purposeful. Sometimes it's laziness or just lack of thinking things through or lack of consideration. I would say most of the time it's those things. Or it's misguided. Yeah, you're doing what you think is right. Yeah. It's just that what you think is right is not always what God thinks is right. Yeah, and it, it's so hard to actually know, right? Like this is, this is a, a question for the ages, right? How do I know? whether I'm using my gifts well or badly. Yeah. Because if everyone knew, the church would be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I think that in part goes back to, I guess it was last week's conversation where we were talking about community and the importance of community in things like reading um, and even writing. But also, obviously, community is very important when it comes to matters of faith because how does the hand know it's doing the right thing if there aren't eyes to tell it so? And if there isn't, you know, a nose hand can't be in the right place unless the arm puts it there. Right. So we re we rely on each other to know if we're doing a good job and if we're doing things the way we should. And I think if we cut ourselves off from that, then we're really doing ourselves a big disservice because we're not we're not living the full body experience. Yeah. So I'm wondering a little bit how does storytelling because the, the the subject of all of this is how you tell a good story or something right. to that effect. Yeah. I still can't remember stories the title of this thing. Telling. Stories worth telling. Or worth yeah, reading, whatever. Worthwhile stories. So, how does understanding gifts help us to tell better stories or understand better stories? Because I think that some authors aren't necessarily going to put this in there, but this goes back to last week's discussion about sort of 
reading with a team and it being a communal experience, right, is you can recognize a gift that someone has that maybe the author didn't even know. It just was, this is the way this person has to be. Right. And and that's the beauty of well-drawn characters is that they are so three-dimensional and multifaceted anyway, faceted, that they... Um, they have these things, whether you've identified them or not, they're there. It's part of who they are. Uh, so you've drawn them out a bit and other people have the names to put to them. Um, but one thing that I, I decided a while back would be really interesting to do would be to look at all, all my characters, especially the ones that I'm just beginning to write, but even go back and look at my pre-existing characters through the lens of spiritual gifting and see, you know, see what they have, what they, what God has given them in my fictional world. Um, which is funny because in, in writer, writer worlds, there's a ton of things on character development that has, you know, take the, the personality tests for your characters. And I'm an IMTBJ plus six. <laughs> right. All these, all these different personality profiles. This is huge in writer circles. I mean, there are whole topics that go on and on and on where people just say, what character type is your heroine? And people just start typing in all those initials. I don't do these tests, so they mean nothing to me. And I'm like, I am what? Um, hmm. I, I don't know. Can't, can't participate in this I-D-K. conversation. <laughs> I I don't, don't know. know exactly. But so this is something people writers think a lot about already. They're already thinking about personality. Who, is this yeah. Who are they? And trying to figure out ways to to deepen them. And I'm not sure how many in the Christian space think to do it from the spiritual perspective, but I think it's so cool, really, and and such a great way to get to know your characters. Well, and it's it's another element that you can add in subtly. Yeah. Like this person's a mathematician or this person's a musician or this person is this and that. Right. And it'll also help you to understand their role in, in their community, in their story, because they're interacting with other people. And when you have, you know, this whole list of, of spiritual gifts and how they interact with each other, that kind of lets you know, oh, well, this person has this gift. They're probably going to have to work really closely with someone with this gift that complements it. I mean, the one we all know is... Um, speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues, right? Speaking in tongues to a group means nothing if you don't have someone to interpret it. So just as an example, you need the two to work together. Right, like a person who has a gift with languages mm -hmm. needs to interact with people who speak other languages for right, that or, to matter. Or it's useless. <laughs> it does nothing, right? One of the things I was thinking when you said that, and this this is a sort of weird esoteric question, is... Do writers create these stories or does God create these stories and these characters the same way that they create real people? Wow. Um, I'd like to think it's it's a, a joint effort. And I think it's because God created us in his image, right? And what is he first and foremost when we say that sentence? A creator. So we all have that creative in us. We all express it in different ways. Some some people build things with their hands. Some people build things with numbers for some bizarre reason. <laughs> I'm not a mathematician. Um, some of us build worlds with words. And I think that it, it is us. It's who we are. It's part of our nature. But it's that part of our nature that echoes God. And I think when we want to do it very well and when we seek to do it very well and when we're doing it knowing that this is a gift from God, we can draw on on his creativity too and let him guide us. And I know, you know, speaking personally, every single book I write, there is some point at beginning, middle and end where I say, Lord, just make this what you want it to be because I'm just tossing words onto the page here. Right. And isn't, 
isn't this that at least potentially part of the reason why characters never do what you want? Yeah, man. That, yeah. Because there's a way that they have to be. Uh huh. And we have in our head that they're that they they're going to follow these neat little rules, and then once you get to know them and they become real people, they become real people with all these different personality traits that you hadn't counted on but it, it it goes along with their other things and they have these gifts and they have these weaknesses and it all plays together in ways you you can't foretell until you've gotten to know them right so uh, a little pivot for a second though to to pull in last week's subject and this week's subject how many of us know what our gifts are and how many people have you heard in real life say i have no idea yeah, I've heard a lot. And I've heard people who have taken the little quiz to figure it out. And I always kind of go, hmm, does that really work? I don't know. I don't think it does. But can story help us to know what the gifts are? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think because we can generally find ways to identify with characters or identify with one more than another. We see ourselves in them. So if then it's been drawn out to the point where you can see what their gift is. Which I think it probably could it could be i don't know that it often is once in a while i can't think of many stories i've read where it's well, i wonder explicit. if we can't interpret right. is what i'm getting sure. at like the yeah. author may not have meant this but if it's something you're thinking about and have you know read up on the gifts and know what they are then you probably can identify them in the characters sure and i think often another purpose of the body and the community is that uh, we can see each other's gifts more clearly than our own i think sometimes Right. Well, and that actually goes, from a story perspective, might defend the the lone solitary reader for a second mm-hmm. to help them sort of learn about themselves, right? Like yeah. if you're uncomfortable being in groups of people, Yeah. maybe imaginary people are the way to go. <laughs> that could be. Uh, yeah. I mean, for anyone listen last week, it doesn't make sense to sit and read alone. But if God can talk to you through individual characters and you can learn about yourself through them. Yeah. And I think that happens a lot. And that's that's often a very emotional reading experience. It's a very moving experience. Those are the books that you're going to keep forever, right? Because God speaks to you through those pages, through those characters. Do all books do that? No. <laughs> just Just throwing that out there. I really don't think they all do. I've read many books that are just fluff. They're just words on a page sometimes, I think but that's not what our goal should be. Certainly, certainly those of us writing Christian fiction. Well, even Christian fiction is, it? you know, I would hope that there's one person out there that it... That it touches. Yeah, I would hope so. And I think a lot of times... Well, and again, because people are coming to it with their own. Right. So one person might get out of it when no one else does, but it's what they needed in that moment for whatever reason complex set of circumstances brought them to that point in time yeah yeah i mean i've heard stories i wish i could remember a particular one but it you know it's something like you know crying over a dish pattern right (laughs) yeah like it's something that they you know an author threw in as a throwaway right and but it it rings a bell with them for whatever because it was you know the exact pattern that their mother had on their dishes and they'd been mourning their mom who just died of cancer and you know dot 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 right right but you you never know what circumstances someone else might be in when they come across your book i think that the thing to do at this point because i'm afraid that we weren't going to do a good job with ending this whole thing is <laughs> how do like what is our takeaway this has been you know Six half hours. 
well, it will be by the time <laughs> by the time we finish. by the time we we sum up. What's the takeaway? What what makes a good story worth reading? I think it takes purpose on the part of the author. Like they have to be writing deliberately, um, preferably with an ear open to God and what He's doing through them. Um, on the part of the writer, it takes developing deep characters who you know have a real life in the pages of this book that that readers will be able to see themselves in um it takes making choices uh it takes humility on the part of the author which is what we were talking about when when you let other people into your process and you start having critique partners having editors you're willing to let part of your story go in order to make it less about you and more about your right. reader. Worth reading is an important part yes. of that sentence. Yeah. You can have a great story, but if no one ever reads it, it's not worth reading. Right. Because it's it might as well not exist if no one else ever gets it. So So is the idea that a story can change the world what makes it worth reading, or is that a side effect of the fact that it is worth reading? Again, chicken and the egg, esoteric <laughs> question. Yeah. Um I think stories can change the world because of all these things. Their value. Right. And I would say, like, it's not to say that there aren't more things that make a good story. You sure. Know, or They're very complex. They're, they're wonderful things. It takes a lot. Right. Like, some, there are certain things that we haven't touched on at all. Like, a story is never going to change the world if no one reads it. Mm -hmm. Right? So, if... You're not promoting it if you don't tell anybody about it and it just sits at Amazon, one out of, you know, 20 million <laughs> right. titles. It, you know, is it worth, is it still worth reading if no one reads about it? Right. Like I, I've had, um, you know, someone has said, what is the most important part of making a movie? And I've had people totally honestly say the trailer, <laughs> right? Like why should someone watch it? Yeah. So, you know, why should someone pick up a book? Like, we, we didn't touch on the question of why should anyone want to know any of this? Like, does it does it matter? Does which matter? Does the desire or lack of desire? I've heard people describe certain classics as the best book no one's ever read. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that gets at the heart of it, that there can be a book really worth reading that has really wonderful stuff in it. But it's never going to change the world unless it's read by, frankly, the right people, the people who need it, the people who are going to go out and do something. And thinking about the classics, I mean, some of these are books that founded Western civilization because the right people read them, but no one today does. Yeah, you or, read the Cliff's Notes versions or someone's commentary on it or right. it's a chapter in a Oh, it's a paragraph textbook. in a textbook. Yeah. And, you know... It did its job then, but it's, it's you know... But it doesn't take away it? any of the value and right. the worth. No, the value is, is there. The value is in the effort put in and the effort Well, that's why we didn't it. spend an entire session talking about covers and... <laughs> we didn't, though we could. It's fun too. But no, but the story, the story I think is where the worth lives. And then it's a matter of getting it into the hands of the people who need it, the people who are going to let themselves be changed by it, the people who are going to read it and want to be better, the people who are going to talk to other people 
who have, who it's also resonated with, talk about the book, talk about that desire that it ignited in them. And, you know, then they go out and they do something. They talk to other people, they get, they get movement going, they get, you know, kind of some momentum going. And, you know, there are tons of examples of books that have had this, this power, films that have had this power. You can see it even when you just look at phrases that have come to be so common that were, you know, new in, in a piece of art. I, I, the example I think of is pay it forward. You see that everywhere now. It was from a movie we watched in college. You know, this kid came up with it. He wanted to pay it forward. And, you know, it was like the pivot of the movie. And that phrase never existed until then. Now it's common. Now it's something people make it a point to do. You pay for the coffee of the person behind you and walk away. I mean, this is, you know, this is the power of story. So is there anything else that is worth touching on that we've forgotten? Anything that you think this is something that makes makes it good? And the answer can be no. And if there are <laughs> listeners who say, well, what about... Because there could certainly be some of courses, right? Like we've we're, we've taken a handful of hours to try to drill down on the things that we've really spent a lot of time thinking and talking about right. over the years. From, you know, fact and fiction and, you know, good and evil and, you know, characters of all shapes and sizes. So I'm sure there's something that we've we've left out where you would go, obviously, that's important. Some people might want to talk about plot. I was going to say, yeah, we haven't <laughs> talked at all about story structure. That's what no, plot came that's into a, my head. That's a whole different thing. But yeah, I mean, to a point, you know, yeah, you have to structure things in a way that works. But, there are ways that work. But like Aristotle says, what, there's only like seven plots or something like that? I don't remember his number, but he, he does say a very small number of plot. Yeah. Like there's only so many stories that you can tell. Yes. Aristotle also says that plot comes first and characters are secondary. I still disagree with him on this. But but I think that it depends on what you're calling primary and secondary, right? Like it's really like if you just come up with a really cool character, chances are there's not going to be. There is no story until you say, you know, a uh, priest and a rabbi. Like, you've got to have the walk into a bar. <laughs> right. They have to be doing something. That's very true. I just always think of it as, as you pointed out before in, in the last one, I guess, you can have two exact same circumstances, but the people in them make all the difference. Because they're not going to do a thing. Right. They don't, they don't react the same way. So, you know, they may have the same inciting incident, but the plot's going to move forward very differently based on who the character is. Well, like plot comes down to potentially those deliberate choices mm -hmm. that you make. Yeah. Like if you put a particular character in a particular circumstance, sometimes it's really boring. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, no offense, people who love Westerns, but when you put John Wayne in a Western, it's kind of a little on the nose, right? <laughs> you know what's going to happen. Overarching anyway. Like Clint Eastwood as, uh, you know... Uh, rebel police officer who plays by his own rules that's just the <laughs> 1970s right like that that was what it was right but where it becomes interesting is when you put clint eastwood as a you know older grandfather in a you know small town in detroit right and yeah. you throw other characters at him yeah when you take that character and put him in an unexpected plot 
now you've you've got something different. Now I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. And we also didn't talk anything about setting, right? But sometimes setting is one of those choices that Absolutely. gives a Absolutely. Setting can be, setting should be a character. Yeah, I don't know that we talked about setting as a character, but. We didn't, but. But I think, you know, I'm just wanting to hit right hit these things before we, right. we close up. Yeah, there are certainly many, many parts of story that we haven't covered. We've just touched the ones that we tend to think most about. I think that we've touched the ones not only that we think the most about, but the ones that we th- I think that we believe make the biggest impact. Right. Yeah. Like, it, you know, there's lots of fundamentals that are really easy, but this is the stuff that... that takes things to a different level. Takes things to a different level. This is where I might want to, to try to end is... I, we've been using the term good stories, and I wonder, there's always been this pressure or or differentiation between good books and great books. Yep. So, I and I've always sort of wanted to, tongue-in-cheek, you know, lower the bar a bit and say, I want to work on good books. <laughs> right? Like, the idea of a, a great book that changes the world for generations. Um. That's a high standard to that's, that's to very, aspire to. Very, very high goal. Yeah. So what what's the difference between a good story, a story, a good story, and a great story? Right. I think as you were talking, I was thinking in my my little head here that the the big way to define them may be by the impact they have. So a you know just a story is one you might read and forget. A good story is one you're going to read and remember. Um, and right. Then, a story is an Avengers movie, right? right? You interacted with it for a couple hours and it's over. <laughs> yeah. Some people may find it good or Okay. Great, there's someone getting ready but, to write me a, an email <laughs> about the Avengers. Write a nasty note about that. But yeah. So, I mean, we've all read, all read those books, right? You read them, you forget about them, you put them on your shelf. I put them on my shelf. Some people get rid of them altogether. They have no reason to keep them. They're never going to open them up again. Well, they give them to someone else or they oh, gasp, throw them away. I, oh, don't throw books away, people. Yeah. But so when it goes up a level, it starts involving you more. It's it's the keeper shelf. It's the one that you may even reread someday. It's the one you want to talk about to someone. Um, but then I think, you know, if you're trying to get to that level of great, it has to have an impact greater. Huh bigger than um than you know a small group it has to as you said generations you know that that's what we all hope for but who knows right now right what what might right. last like is, i think why i again tongue-in-cheek say i want to work on good books because i at least know that i can know that <laughs> right so yeah like a good book could be one that you read more than once right not even more than twice like that you'll pick up I've heard some people, like, they'll read something once a year. Oh, yeah. I have people read Stray Drop once a year. I have quite a, quite a intense... number of people read A Stray Drop of Blood every Easter. And I'm just like, wow, you've read it more than I have at this point then. <laughs> you probably know these characters better than I do. But I think that that becomes a book that's riding that line that you may never know whether. Right. You, you don't know how long it'll live there long it'll last if it'll go generations well and i think that that's another important defining thing this was something i talked to camille Idy about not too long ago was do you want and i think that she writes books that can have an effect in perpetuity right like it doesn't matter like they can be timely 
because the times they come around. <laughs> they're, they're timely because they're timeless. Right. Yeah. Timely because they're timeless. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Thank you. Like, so I think that that's a required standard too, right? Like it, it can't find a way to date itself. Right. Too, too much. And I know that an awful lot of authors struggle with this, right? Like um, Stephanie probably struggles with, I know for a fact she struggles with this question of technology in her young adult books. Oh, right. If it's contemporary. I didn't, I wrote this 10 years ago before there were smartphones. I want to put the book out, but now how do I do this with characters who don't have smartphones? Do I have to rewrite the whole thing? Yeah. Because those things change. Yeah. Yep. Which is why some people make it a point to write near time historicals i guess I, i'm not sure <laughs> right. i can think of a better way to put it but like they write it in the 1990s because it was a yeah. very or they it will say 2002 on the you know yeah it's like oh okay sure but at least then you know what's what right like you've established it, the it character of plot. oversight that there are no... or character of setting rather yeah right so, I mean, there are always those things that, you know, we might want to change in a book or or that we are afraid will make something not timeless, not that it was just timely. It's not timeless. But there's always also those parts of the book that can be drawn out to, you know, have that that quality. And I think a lot of authors are going to be trying, as you said, to to do that, to focus on on how to to take their story and make it timeless. And I think that's often what an author is going to strive for because that's what we want to do with our stories. We we don't want these to be, you know, fireflies, right? A, a pinprick of light in the darkness that's gone by morning and the thing's dead, right? This is, these are things we want to, to echo throughout generations, um, throughout decades, however long. We want it to have an effect. And I think that they can. And I think that that's, that's a, a really noble goal to have and one that we have a hope of accomplishing when we do all the things we've been talking about, when we invite God into our story, when we look at things through a spiritual lens, and when we even just keep in mind that our goal is not just a story, it's a good story that's worth reading. Thanks for listening today as we talked about the spiritual elements of character and storytelling and sum up this whole series. Do you think that we did a good job answering the question, what makes good stories that are worth reading? We'd love to hear your thoughts on this series and any topics that you might want to hear more on in the future. Feel free to send us a message and let us know what else you might want us to talk about. This podcast is sponsored by Read Whitefire. There you can read the first two chapters of any Whitefire Publishing Group company's books. And if you like what you read, they're available for purchase in print format, as well as electronic formats for all the most popular e-readers. Some books even have signed copies available. And if you're a listener of this podcast, there's a chance you're a good candidate for Platy People, our membership program for unique readers. For just $5 a month or $50 a year, Platy People members get to choose two free books per month, a free novella, 15% off all purchases, including gift certificates, and free shipping to U.S. addresses. Why choose ordinary when you can read extraordinary? Unexpressed is part of the Whitefire Podcast Network. Please visit whitefire.tv slash podcast to find other shows we know you're going to love.